Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo jam Hello and welcome to this, the first episode of Paleo Jam. My name is Michael Mills, I'm your host for today and with me is Phoebe McInerney. Hi Phoebe. Hi Michael, how are you going? I'm very good and Dr Aaron Caymans. Hi Mike, happy to be here. And we are recording this on Ghana land, uh, Flinders University. And the topic of today's uh, first episode is, what's the point? What's the, well, more, bro, a little bit broader than that. What, what's the point? What's the point of paleontology? And um, part of what we're going to do with this show is that each person has to bring along uh, an artifact. It can be a paleo, art, it, can be a, it can be a fossil, it can be whatever they want. And we're going to use that to help inform the discussion um, over the next little while. So who's going to go first, Aaron? I think it'll be me, Mike. Yeah. Uh, so today we have the first public unveiling of a very special fossil. This is an extinct species of Tasmanian devil called Sarcophilus laniarius. And for comparison, it's about 30% larger than our modern Tassie devils. But in the th keeping with the theme of today's why should we care about paleontology, one thing that many people don't appreciate is that Tasmanian devils were all across the Australian mainland. They're Australian devils, not Tasmanian devils. And this actually comes from Lake Victoria up on the Murray in, uh, near the border of New South Wales and South Australia. So this, no one outside of the uni has seen this before. So we, no? we our viewers who are listening... <laughs> that can't actually see it, but there might be a photo attached. This is the first public showing of this artefact. Um, thank you for that. Okay, Phoebe, what have you brought? Well, I brought along the foot of a bird, which I absolutely love. It's called Janionis. And Janionis is a giant flightless bird that's quite closely related to your gallowances, so like your chickens and ducks and geese and that whole group of birds. And... Genuinus lived in the Pleistocene, so it's a very cool representative of an extinct group, which I love. So Cool. And um, what did I bring? What did you bring? What did I bring? Opening up a little thing. So I brought a little um, model of an ammonite, and inscribed on the back of the ammonite is Marianning Rocks. And this particular ammonite was sent to me and a few other folk because we helped in raising funds to ensure that there was a statue built of Mary. And we'll talk about it as, as we go through, but, but there are lots of reasons why I think this object, for me, has a lot to say about what's the point of paleo and, and why it matters. So, Aaron, let's, let's come back to you. And, and, and you, you talk um, in, your, in your bio stuff, you, you talk about being... Um, you were that kid, weren't you? You were that kid that, that you knew what you wanted to do. I thought you were going to say that kid who always peed himself. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> there's, there's, so, well, we are uh, experiencing some personal revelations amongst the panel here tonight, which we weren't expecting, but thank you for sharing that, Aaron. But, but you, you were that kid that you knew at five years old 
you know, as the Professor Flint song goes, <laughs> I want to be a paleontologist. So, so was that you? Absolutely. In fact, one of my earliest memories of being interested in dinosaurs was opening an encyclopedia for all of our you know, kids born this century here. An encyclopedia is like, it's this collection of flat bits of wood that have stuff written on it and it has lots of information about a whole range of different things. And I opened to D and there was this double page spread of dinosaurs and that captured my imagination and I never forgot that spread and picked my favourite straight away, best dinosaur ever, Dimetrodon. That's really such an important thing. And I mean, I wasn't that kid, surprisingly, not interested in dinosaurs whatsoever growing up, um, much more now. But that's why I bought Genuinus, because I think that like relationship of birds to dinosaurs and how everything kind of interconnects and how it's so inspiring for children to see these things growing up. And I think that's what's that's one of the multiple factors of why paleontology is so important to get kids interested in the natural world. Absolutely. And there's been some really interesting research on intense interests. Um, and a, a, a kid might have an intense interest in, in cars or dinosaurs or, or whatever it is. And that intense interest drives them to explore and discover all manner of things. Um, and, and I've got a quote here from... Uh, Hunter, no, not him. He comes later. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Live, good. Uh, Kenneth Lacavora, paleontologist. He says, I think for many of these children, he's talking about the kids with intense interests, um, that's their first taste of mastery, of being an expert in something and having command of something their parent or coach or doctor doesn't know about. And we, I mean, I, I work with kids a lot. And the number of times that you get that kid and you, there's a light switched on. You know, and you're talking to them and you see the, the, the passion they have for this particular subject. And the term that's often used for paleontology, of course, it's a, a gateway science. Mm. Yeah, well, paleontology is really the study of everything past. And that means that every single scientific discipline, except possibly future studies, has a place in paleontology. However, saying that, one of the fantastic things about paleontology is that it provides us our baseline record for looking at what is going to happen going into the future. You are correct, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but it, it's, it's that, that whole, I guess, that, that whole passion for science. The, like the, the dinosaur university thing that I do, we, we have this phrase, come for the dinosaurs, stay for the science. One of the things that I was talking to some folk about in a debate last year um, was that kind of following on from what you said is paleontology is what happens when you draw all the sciences together. Yeah, I think there's no way that you can actually talk about paleontology without discussing things like geology and dating and biology and like and it's just so inclusive. Yeah, of course, everything combines to create this field. Yeah, so it's what you're saying, Phoebe, is that it's the the master science, isn't it? It's the of science course. that the best brings ones. the best the best. Although, <laughs> an important point there is it's not even just science. There's a huge creative component to paleontology as well, and that is often the part that engages the general public. The mixture of art and science in communicating past life. Absolutely, and, and we see that you know through movies like Jurassic Park and to, well, a, less, debatably to a lesser extent, <laughs> to a lesser extent Jurassic World, and then it kind of falls away from there. But, but you're right; it's the popular culture stuff, mm. and that popular culture stuff doesn't exist 
without the work that folk like you do and, and many of the folk in the room. And the stories as well that we can tell with that. And, you know, they're not necessarily true, but they're as true as we know them to be at the moment. And I think that really brings people to have this brilliant understanding of the world and how we can interact with it in different ways. Yeah, so aside from being an inspiration for kids and, and popular culture, what what else is that? I mean, is that enough? We, we you know, we've we just come through a... No, no, we haven't come through. We're still in it. A little thing called a pandemic and a lot of university funding kind of seemed to vanish, um, whereas other organisations received funds. How do we continue to explain to the public why the research that you two, for example, do matters. Why, Phoebe, why? T- t- tell me about Jenny Ornus. Why does studying Jenny Ornus matter? Well, I think one of the things that, I mean, I obviously think Jenny Ornus matters. I have spent the past three years studying this one group of birds, but to society as a whole, it's a much more complicated question. But I think that If we step back and look at science, I think we need to recognise that society can advance if we recognise the importance of science for science's sake. And we understand that the exploration and the things that we can learn through just general science that doesn't necessarily have a direct important outcome for society is really important. Yep. And that's especially true in what we've been experiencing in the last two and a half years of the pandemic. People have been looking for content for things to enrich their lives because they're stuck in their homes. And things like paleontology inspire the imagination. We are telling the story of the entire history of the planet in what we do in paleontology. If we just look at what's going on at present, it's pretty depressing often, but also it's only a tiny, tiny little time slot. And there's so much that's gone before that in terms of the diversity of life, but also the different ways and processes that our planet has been shaped. Yeah, and and going on from that, you you know, we we live in a time of changing climates, of CO2 increasing. Can paleontology help inform us in that space in terms of the consequences? Yeah, definitely. Paleontology really provides that perspective. So we wouldn't know whether what we're experiencing at the moment is any different to what has happened 10,000, 100,000, 100 million years ago if we didn't have the paleontological record. And so those climate indicators that we've got in the past tell us what should be expected in the natural order and when something is way outside of those bounds. And that's what we're seeing today is something that is way outside of what we expect to see in these natural processes. And it's so accessible as well. I mean, we can tell people that the climate is changing, but, you know, in society today, it's so easy for us to not recognise that. We're not on small islands where it's flooding at the moment. We're pretty safe where we are. But if we can have fossils and they're things that we can touch and manipulate and see and feel, I think people can actually come to understand that these changes are real and they're things that we need to think about in the future and be concerned about. Yeah, I guess the thing is that that old saying, I I guess it's not an old saying at all, is it? Um, That if you want to know what happens when you increase the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, you ask a paleontologist because they've seen it. They've seen it in the Permian, the biggest mass extinction in the history of the world and that was caused by a massive increase in co2 
And that's part of the thing too, isn't it? We, we know what caused that. We, we know what's causing the increase in CO2 now. And it's pretty basic science. Yeah. So paleontology allows us to help inform that. But the other thing it does do, I, I think, is it gives us hope. Yeah, uh, definitely. With the like, huge diversification of species that we see after extinction events, life just does it. Are you, are you suggesting life finds a way? <laughs> oh, maybe I am. <laughs> Thank you. But another really important point, though, about what paleontology can offer in that respect is that we have to remember that paleontology and the fossil record provide a really in-depth record of what was happening before humans started screwing everything up. So, and... In many cases around the world, that's a long process. We're not just talking about European colonialism and the impacts it's had in the last 300 years. We're talking about the spread of our species across the planet and the flow-on effects from that. And without having that baseline in the fossil record, we wouldn't even know what a healthy ecosystem looks like. So what can you tell us, each of you, about... Because obviously there are no Tassie devils on the mainland anymore, and obviously... Jenna Ornus is all dead. Um, obviously, there's thylacines everywhere. Um, you know, smudge. There was another one came out today, like a smudgy little picture of a thing. That, no, it's a fox with mange. Um, so what... <laughs> um, with, with the critter that you've got, with the specimen that you've got, what, what does that tell us? What do we know about the causes of their extinctions? I think one of the difficult things about Jenny Ornus is that we only have a record of it being alive. So we can only say it was alive at this point and we have no record of it being alive after this point. So we think that we can estimate the time that it went extinct, um, but of course we can't say definitively it disappeared exactly then. We don't have a mass extinction event for something like Genionis. And I guess, yeah, the, the part, the part of the, the issue is always the, the quality and extent of the fossil record. Yeah. And, yeah. and any paleontological analysis needs to, I guess, be a little bit circumspect because there may be more fossils that give you a broader picture. Yeah, so I, I did a bit of work on Genionis and found that there was a population that showed some disease and we had it in a fairly high number of individuals and we suggested that potentially that disease was a causal factor of the extinction of that one population because we can't put that on any other population. But of course, there were a lot of people who went a little bit, got really excited and were like, yes, it's disease. People had nothing to do with it. It wasn't the environment. Disease killed everything. Um, so we do really need to be a little bit careful with how we take things like that. Which is it's interesting is because people always try and, politicise or, or look at scientific outcomes within the context of their cognitive biases and their values. And even with the thing as simple as that, it's like, well, there's a bunch of gene illnesses here and they got a disease and they died. That doesn't mean all of them did. Yeah. But people are going, oh, yes, it must be. Aaron, I was in Tasmania um, for a few days recently and it was very cold. Um, and... There are Tassie devils there, but they're in trouble because of a, a contagious cancer. What do we know about what happened with the, the, the mainland, the bigger ones? Well, that's a contentious issue too. What we do know is that the youngest Tasmanian devil fossil from the mainland is about 3,300 years old. And we also know that 
around about that time dingoes were introduced to Australia. Might have been 5,000 years ago, might have been as early as 10,000, like probably closer to five. And dingoes are a placental predator and they are extremely adaptable, they can work in packs, and they have a whole range of characteristics that our naive marsupial fauna are not adapted to dealing with. And so what this means is that both thylacines and Tasmanian devils on the mainland were competing with this new super predator, essentially, that was really better at what it did than thylacines or devils were. And so the theory is that through competitive exclusion, over the course of a couple of thousand years, dingoes actually pushed thylacines and Tasmanian devils out of their natural range. They never got to Tasmania, and so we see them surviving in Tasmania until Europeans come along and start um, having the impacts that they had on those species. Okay, and the cool thing about the two things that you've just talked about is it's, 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 it's fascinating content for people to know and to understand, and it gets them, and this is one of the things I think that, that paleontology does for us. It's about the story of our place, isn't it? It's about the story of here. We have been banging on for a very long time about the importance of learning and knowing the prehistoric stories of the place of where we live. And the number of times that I've done things, I'm like, okay, who can tell me the name of an Australian dinosaur? And I get crocodiles, I get T-Rex, I get all kinds of things. Every now and then, um, I will get um, Australovenator or I will get Minmi. And it's almost like, hallelujah, I went to Winton and spent some time at the high school there. Every dinosaur they listed was Australian. So that, that, tells us that where there's a community that's engaged and knows about its story, they will pick those first. Um, but how do we get to that place? Because this stuff you're talking about, the research that you do, the research they do at Flinders at Adelaide and, and, and with the museum, is, is remarkable South Australian stories. We're actually really lucky as paleontologists because our work is interesting. <laughs> Take that, other sciences! Yep. <laughs> which means that the general public want to hear about it. Because one of our major responsibilities is not just writing up a scientific paper that carefully documents what we're finding. It's actually making sure that the wider community gets an idea about what we're finding and what its significance is as well. And so part of what we do in our Flinders Paleo Lab is make sure that we are running events like this or we're talking to school groups, or we're writing popular science articles, or we're doing paleo art reconstructions to try and engage people and help them understand what the significance of our findings are. And that's definitely, like we've got a really good uh, group of people at Flinders who spend a lot of time doing that for their work. Like Ellen's paper came out recently on the Eagle, she wrote a couple of articles for it and worked really well with the media team. Um, and I had people all over the place really randomly just saying, oh, there was an eagle. Uh, not an eagle, I am... Um, vulture. Vulture. Oh, my gosh, it was actually a vulture. The first Australian vulture. Um, and the community just absolutely loved it. So... Yeah, it's really great to be able to communicate these really cool things with people. And, and the cool thing respond. is, and, and that brings us to, to, to the whole uh, science thing, doesn't it? Um, and it's a space that I get to play in um, with, with the Prof Lint stuff and, and shows that I do. And, and I don't get to do any of that 
without the work that the paleos do. And I've been really lucky over a long period of time of getting to hang out with real paleos and have my songs peer-reviewed, <laughs> um, like literally, um, but also co-write. So there's a song about the go-go fish that John Long and I wrote. There's a song that uh, Gil Price and I wrote about Inv- Invicto Koala, and it's on you know the, the Prof Lint albums. Um, but I want to come to, to my little object again. Because I think there's there's something in in this little Marianning Ammonite that can help inform us about some of the other things that that paleontology can tell us, and it's it comes back to that whole stuff of stories, and I was always fascinated by the story of Marianning, and Marianning became Prof Flint's science hero, and then and I'd always wanted to write some stuff about it, and then this campaign started to build this statue so I've gone right this is my opportunity to write the song about me so we did a song and it got lots of views and people bought it and we were able to give the statue people I think it's about 500 pounds um it's probably why I still have a mortgage because <laughs> um, <laughs> um but we've now gone on to do so the most recent album I did was was a Professor Flint Gemma Dandy album which was the story of Mary and we're looking at doing more things with that but there's there's other people like Katrina Kenny and other paleo artists um I mean so you guys work with artists how does that work uh we have artists in the lab yep. that um we work quite closely with who can design and recreate animals for us so Jacob's done one um, and we also work with people like Aaron's work quite extensively with Peter Trussler, so really famous, absolutely brilliant um, paleo artists who, yeah, do a wonderful job at working with us to really create our vision of what we want. Speaking of visions, um, behind us is a screen with the Paleo Jam logo on it. And um, can we just have a round of applause for Phoebe for doing that? Um, because we, so Phoebe and I were, were chatting, because um, we wanted, uh, I wanted the, the podcast to be called Paleo Jam because it's a, it's a conversation, um, uh, like a museo jam session, but there's also the whole jam jar thing. And we talked about, oh, should it be Australian Paleo Jam? And we thought, no, no, but I wanted, we talked about having the graphic to be Australian. So everything on that graphic, on that logo is Australian. Um, and again, that's part of that. We, we, we need to be proud of our stories. You know, there should be Ice Age down under. There should be all of these things, you know. Um, Aaron, so you, you've, you've worked with Trussler? Yes, I have. In fact, we are 100% behind this idea that science and art come together in paleontology. We have a topic in our paleontology degree where students get a chance to learn the basics of scientific illustration. And Peter Trussler is in my unbiased opinion, the best reconstruction artist in <laughs> Australia. Um, and I, we've been really lucky to actually be able to get him in to teach our students as well. So it's not just about collaborating with the paleontologists, it's about training the next generation of paleontologists in this field too. Okay, so you're training all these paleontologists um, and then they all leave university and they all become lecturers and professors. Now that's a key point. So there's because they don't do of, they? <laughs> no, there's this kind of old, outdated idea that a paleontologist or even a scientist in general is this kind of old, fusty person sitting around in a university or a museum writing papers, looking at old bones or whatever. But 
there's a whole range of different things. There's science communication, there's paleo art, there's the technical side of things like looking at um, collection management. Then there's the academic side itself. And then there's the paleo tourism side of things as well, actually sharing this stuff. So not just about saying, look at this cool fossil I found, but taking people out on the ground, giving them opportunities to dig up their own fossils or contribute to ongoing research. And that's something that I've just been amazed with, with paleo. And I've been really lucky to have had so many opportunities throughout my degree to jump on you know, writing stories for popular science media and doing some drawings and doing this and taking on FUPS. There's just so many opportunities that I've grabbed and all of them have these possible kind of career pathways that stem off from them. And that means that once I finish my PhD, you know, if I don't get a huge grant to support myself for the next couple of years, which at the moment isn't massively likely, I have a huge range of options open to me to take advantage of, say... Yeah, and, and I, I got to host uh, a function recently for the Nilpena Foundation, um, and they're doing a whole lot of really interesting stuff up on, on the property, where I think March next year it will open to the public, and you'll be able to go up there. There's a, 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 a big interp centre. Um, you'll be able to go, go to the Ediacra Biota site, and they're looking at building a whole lot of tourist things around there. And what's cool about that is that, you know, you, you go up there, so it's like, oh, right, you, you go to the Parachilna for a bit, you you go to, um, you might go to Blinman because there's a fabulous mine tour there. It's like, oh, I'm going to go up to Akarula as well. So it helps draw you into that precinct, I suppose. Um, and we've got Narracourt, of course. Um, you know, there's there's the trilobite stuff, the early Cambrian stuff at Emu Bay. The stuff in Wellington which is, as well? Yeah, so the stuff in out. Wellington. So there's a whole, we have a remarkable fossil heritage here in South Australia. Um, and I was only chatting to somebody yesterday about this idea of geotrails, you know, geology trails, which there are places around the world which do it so much better than we do. And that's because the local communities and the tourist people are going, oh, this is a way that we can, we can engage tourists, but also engage local people. Um, paleontology. So, the other thing, of course, um, the dark side, <laughs> the dark side of paleontology is that um, I got a book at home from Sinclair Oil um, because there are paleontologists and, 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 and totally understand, of course, because you need to earn a living, but part of paleontology has helped find... Um, oil fields and gas fields and stuff. So there's, there's a, there are career opportunities there. <laughs> Obviously, those are changing because we are looking, we've, we've looked back and gone, mm, actually, maybe that's not the thing to do. Geology is, can be quite a bit of a lucrative business. I think if you get into it, you can follow that down some rabbit holes. Um, but I think that it's really up to the person for if they want to go down that way. And there's some brilliant geology jobs that... Um, are very ethical as well, so I don't think it should be ruled out. Yeah, yeah. So if you could each give your five-year-old self some advice, Aaron first and then Phoebe, in terms of your career looking forward. What Just would you do, do what you're going to do and it'll work. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. I, should, I should qualify that, that I am extremely privileged. I have had a background which has allowed me to study what I wanted to study. 
I've had incredibly, incredibly supportive parents. I've had a great research community in my own backyard that I've been very privileged to become a part of. So I fully acknowledge that I have come from a very privileged point and the journey is often a lot more difficult for many other people. But I've been really lucky to be exactly where I wanted to be. Phoebe? Uh, I think I'd probably just say that, you know, it's okay to bounce around a lot and not really have any direction for where you want to exactly see yourself in the future. But, I mean, you'd wind up somewhere that you're really happy to be anyway. So you'll be fine. Yeah, and if I was to ask me the same question, um, it would probably be just do the same stuff. Um, everything, <laughs> everything that I, I mean, I, I'm I'm not, I don't have any formal training in music or theatre or science, and all of it has come from going. Oh, I might do some of that. I walked into a radio station one time and I said, "Can I do a radio show for kids?" And they said, "All right." Then I'm like, "Oh, right." I'm walking out down the street going, how do I do that? But it was that that got me connected to the museum. The museum then... Oh, and then I d did a radio interview with David Bellamy, the, the naturalist, and that was a complete accident. Um, and then he said, read The Future Eaters by Tim Flannery. So I read that and I started writing this thing and then he came and directed the museum and then Paleontology Week happened and then I met all you guys. And then... So there was no... But there was no plan. There was no plan in it. Um, and I think... I think Phoebe, that's very much kind of what you were saying. It's, it's, it's okay to bump around and bounce around. It's okay to not know what you want to do and just but be aware that there will be moments of privilege. And that is just about at the end of the first episode. Thank you, Dr. Aaron Caymans, for joining us in the first episode. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Phoebe McInerney. And thank you, um, thank you to our live audience. Give yourselves a round of applause. Spread some paleo jam